May I speak and may you hear in the name of God the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a great delight to be with you here in Shottermill. And uh, I realize that I'm with you this morning in two capacities. I'm with you, firstly, as your new archdeacon, although the guarantee has almost run out now. I'm almost coming up to six months. Uh, so I have to stop calling myself new. What's an archdeacon, I wonder? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not the guy who drives around in a taxi wearing white gloves, if any of you have seen that awful sitcom Rev. And it's not the crook at the head of the bishop's staff either, before anyone gets that joke in. The word comes from two Greek words, archi, meaning chief or head, and diakonos, meaning servant. So archi diakonos, or archdeacon, means head servant. Like all deacons or servants, we are reminders to the whole church of God of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And to remind each one of us of how our lives must be modelled on this. So the archdeacon's job is to make sure that the servants are doing their jobs properly and to look after them. That means to make sure that people are using their gifts for the advancement of God's kingdom and to care for them. As the church has expanded, the archdeacon's role has shifted to a particular care for clergy and church wardens. I have about 150 clergy and uh, just over that in church wardens. And I want to express my deep gratitude to Claire and to our wardens here at Shottermill for all that they do and have done, particularly during this vacancy. But I'm here, secondly, as your patron. I've never been a patron before. What's a patron? Well, every parish in the Church of England has a patron. These days, a patron is simply someone who has the right to choose and present a new minister to be rector or vicar of the parish. It's often a historic thing, which is about a gift to the person who donated the church or land on which it was built. I haven't the foggiest why the Archdeacon of Surrey is patron of Shottermill. If there are any local historians here, then I'd be glad to know. I suspect it's lost in the mists of time. But don't panic. While the patron formally chooses the minister, the bishop has to agree to license them, and the parish reps can or cannot accept the patron's choice. So I don't really have any power at all. What I do have, fortunately, is a belief that God is the real patron here. He is the one who must choose a new leader 
for this church. And our job is to do our very best to listen to his voice so that we can make sure that Danny's successor in Shottermill is the person whom God has chosen. The time between two vicars or leaders used to be called an interregnum. We dispensed with that phrase because it means between kings. That's unhelpful. There's only one king in our church, and he's been present here, I hope, since the place was built. We now call it vacancy. I'm not sure how helpful that is either. The place doesn't feel very vacant to me this morning. But it's a strange time. We're missing a leader. Danny has gone, and we're not quite sure what God has in store for us. That has echoes of how the disciples must have felt in this season we occupy. Last Thursday, the church celebrated the Ascension. It's one of my favorite festivals of the church's year. In my last church, we had an enormous and stunning east window which depicted Jesus dressed in royal robes, surrounded by angels and archangels, disappearing into the clouds of a bright blue sky, with his throne awaiting him in the top pane of the window. Today's gospel reading is the closest that we get to a hint of ascension in John's gospel. What I love about John's gospel, or one of the things I love about John's gospel, is the way in which he places the good news of Jesus Christ in a cosmic perspective. The gospel begins by telling us that Jesus existed before all time and dwelt in the glory of heaven. The story that follows is of Jesus bringing that glory into the world. Today's gospel hints at his return to the glory of his father. But having established his glory in the world and sharing it with each one of us. And yet the physical removal of the risen Christ from the disciples has caused natural bereavement, bewilderment, and a sense of what next. Of course, we know the story. We know what next. We know that after a period of waiting, Jesus fulfilled the promise he made to his disciples dramatically and in abundance as the Holy Spirit's tongues of fire fell upon those first disciples at Pentecost. Over the two millennia since then, the church has known and testified And each one of us is a part of that testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our own lives. Not just as consuming fire, but as gentle wind, as still small voice, as the comforter, and in so many different ways.
But that's next week's sermon. One of the things I love about the Church of England is its liturgical year. The way in which our year is divided in two. For the first six months from Advent Sunday, we focus on the life of our Lord Jesus, from the advent of his coming to his ascension and coming of the Holy Spirit. And for the second six months, we focus on his teaching. Today we're stuck in that time between Ascension and Pentecost. And I want to return to that place for just a moment. That place of bereavement, of bewilderness, and a sense of what next. What happens now? Everything's stopped. There's a pause in the music. It's silent. Right at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus gives the disciples an instruction. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. They obey him. Not only do they obey him, but they apply true wisdom to his command. They return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet. They make for the upper room and they devote themselves to prayer. The time between Ascension and Pentecost has always been for the church a time of prayer. This year, it's a particularly important time of prayer. The Archbishops of Canterbury and York invite us to join them and thousands of Christians across the world in a novena, nine days of prayer, through an initiative called Thy Kingdom Come. And it's so good to see prayer stations already set up for your involvement in that. If you've missed the first few days, then it's not too late. You can still download the app or get the booklet. And I'm sure there are some around in church. And it feels so appropriate that as we get on our knees during these nine days, we're guided by this morning's gospel reading as we listen to Jesus' own prayer. In fact, the prayer that we listened to this morning in our gospel reading is the longest prayer that we have from the lips of Jesus in Scripture. It was and is the most incredible window into heaven and a conversation between Jesus and his Father. And we are invited in. And as we listen to Jesus praying, we observe three foci of his prayers. Firstly, Jesus prays for himself. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Two things are really important for me here. He addresses God with the same Abba. Daddy, 
opening up the highway for us to do the same. Reminding us that we are called into an intimate relationship with the Father. And then having revealed God's glory through the six signs in the first half of John's gospel, he prepares us for the seventh sign of his glory, the ultimate sign, as he emptied himself of all but love. The first prayer is a prayer of kenosis, Greek word for self-emptying. It's a prayer which asks God to enable him, enable us, to live and die for his glory. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples, and now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. The saints which are revered in the windows of this church are ultimately just a small, frightened group of fragile, lost, vulnerable followers. Jesus recognises this, but he also recognises their power to glorify the Father through their stumbling attempts to live for him which is why they so need the help which Jesus prays for. The second prayer is therefore a prayer for protection, that they may be kept safe from harm. And thirdly, Jesus prays for the church, both beyond the disciples and throughout the ages. I ask not only on behalf of these but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's enormously significant for us that at the heart of this prayer is that we may be one. The expression of unity not as an end in itself, but as a reflection of the community of the Godhead and as a witness to the world. The third prayer is therefore a prayer for unity and for mission. It seeks to make us effective in bringing others to God. So my message to you in Shottermill this morning is simply pray. During this strange time in between the departure of your leader and the arrival of a new one, pray. During this strange time in between the departure of Jesus back to the Father and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray to your heavenly Father who has loved you from before the foundation of the world, that you might empty yourself of everything in order that you may glorify him.
Pray for the leadership of the church, that they may be protected from false voices. And in particular, hear the voice of God in the appointment of a new vicar here. Pray for the whole body of Christ, that we may effectively witness to others, being a transforming church that transforms lives. And come along to Guildford Cathedral next Sunday afternoon and evening so that we may all together be one as a diocese, that his kingdom may come in the Diocese of Guildford as it is in heaven. Amen.